Hi, this is Derek Karp, the founder, chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And uh, super excited about today's guest, Jonathan Pillay, the uh, founder and executive director and the uh, principal consultant for Red Tiger Security, a longtime contributor to our community and, and one of the very first people that I met in the community when I crossed over from sort of traditional IT cybersecurity uh, 12 years ago or so. He'd already been there and been working at it with, uh, with some other pioneers. But if you don't know Jonathan, he is he's certainly from his origins as a state engineer, has become an, I, uh, an OT security evangelist, well-known uh, entrepreneur. He's a longtime business owner. He's an instructor, a speaker. He's a musician, a sax player, in fact, and a scuba diver, which is always near and dear to my heart. I got to always find out who those folks are. Uh, welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Derek. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I, uh, you and I have, have uh, been able to cross paths and spend a little time together over the years here and there. And I know, I know this will be fun. And there's just uh, uh, won't be enough time to unpack all the things that are uh, that are Jonathan um, and that you've touched and are into. And we'll do our best with the time we've got. Why don't we go back? Uh, as I always say, um, cybersecurity folks are modern day superheroes, and every superhero has a backstory. So let's find out the Jonathan Belay backstory. You know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, raised by a single mom. And uh, you know, I had to work hard to get a scholarship, earn a scholarship uh, for electrical engineering, a full ride scholarship to uh, UNO LSU. And I was fortunate to to get out unscathed. <laughs> uh, by the time I was 21, I was already graduated, I had a four year degree, and was was off to the races, starting my career with Chevron which isn't easy growing up in a, in a fun city like New Orleans, but if you can do that, you can do anything, right? <laughs> so now I know where, you know, that you come by the uh, the jazz part of you, uh, you know, that's, you know, you come from the right place for that, right? Oh yeah, it's just the music and the art and everything about New Orleans just, you know, it shapes you, you know? And so being, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old when I picked up a saxophone for the first time and it just felt really natural. So uh, it, was, uh, it was really nice growing up with those roots. That's awesome. Did you play as a kid? I mean, is that something you did consistently? You've been playing ever since. Ever since, yes. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. And I know you 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 play like you you've been in the recording studio with very R artists, and you play with different groups. Um, it's not just you know something casually on the side. You do actually do this as a you know. I know it's not your main, obviously not your main gig, but it's it's a serious thing. Absolutely, yes. And uh, whenever I'm here in town in Houston, uh. I have a couple of venues that hire me to play saxophone at their rooftop events with DJs. Uh, I played in a jazz band for about five years. I also played at a black gospel church uh, with a, about a 70 member choir swaying in the robes. I was playing wow. with a couple of the horn players for, for a while, Grace Church in Humble, Texas. And so I've done a, quite a number of things uh, musically and it's, uh, it's certainly a big passion of mine. Oh, that, that's awesome. Well, well, I'll have to be thinking about what, uh, what CSA event we can uh, arrange for some jazz with you. So in those early years, uh, prior to going to, you know, to get your, your engineering degree, anything before that technologic, you know, any technology sort of impact on your life, computers, anything, or was that just once you went to school, that path began? I mean, why did you pick engineering? Actually, when I was, I think about 12 or 13 years old, uh, I used to ride around the neighborhood on, on my bicycle and I would find discarded electronics like VCRs, uh, you know, Betamax players and tube TVs, uh, even, you know, ironing, iron, uh, ironing board stuff, anything with electronics in it. And I would bring it back home 
and I would set it up in, in my bedroom. And uh, you know, I was like 12 years old, you know, taking apart these things with screwdrivers, begging my mom to take me to a radio shack. And I'd get up to the counter, could barely see the counter. And I would say, hey, uh, I need a 250 ohm resistor. It has these colors on the stripes, you know. And uh, the guy would go back to this, the you know, shelves and give me all the little parts I needed. I would go home and find the burnt parts on the board and uh, unsolder, put new pieces on. And, whoa, I'd make all these old electronics work again. I was fascinated by electronics. And uh, fortunately, uh, my mom's oldest brother, my Uncle Jay, is an electrical engineer. And uh, she said, I don't know what to do with this kid. You know, he's got a room full of these electronics. He's constantly taking apart everything in the house. So what, do I, what should I do with this guy? And uh, he said, let me sit down and talk to him. And he said, uh, Jonathan, are you good in math and science? I'm like, oh, yeah, I get straight A's. You know, my dad was a physicist. And I guess it's in, the, in my blood. He says, well, if you want to know how the theory behind how you're making these things work, you should go into electrical engineering because you'll learn about electric theory, and, you know, electromagnetism and circuit theory and all this stuff. So by the time I was like 13, I already knew I was going to be an electrical engineer. You know, I was telling people, I'm going to be an electrical engineer one day. And so I guess it's just been a, a passion of mine from uh, even early age. And I was fortunate enough to cobble together computers when it was like 80, you know, 286 machines and, you know, strapping U.S. robotics boards to it and connecting to bulletin boards. So I was I was uh, along that whole process as a hobbyist, I guess, you know, even before the Internet was around. I love that. I, you know, every single time I get to do these with people that I've even known, I learn new things. And I really didn't know how how far back they, you know, that went. Um, not many people could say this is when I decided and this is what I did. But I noticed also on your professional history that digital control systems was part of your your degree listing. So you're you know working with SCADA systems or or at least control systems, uh, and and then potentially very early on at Chevron SCADA systems. It goes back to the very beginnings of any professional work you've done at all. Absolutely yes. So uh, the electrical engineering program that I took had an emphasis in uh, digital process control. And so uh, they, they had uh, some TI controllers, some really early Siemens controllers, really old stuff. You had to use a DOS program to, to do the little ladder logic. Um, but so I was programming PLCs even in college before I got out when I was 21. And so then when I went to work for Chevron, you know, that was a great start to my career because over the course of three or four years, I was able to see just a plethora of, you know, probably 12 different control system vendors, components. Uh, we used Wonderware and Intellusion, which was the, one of the first Windows-based SCADA packages. Uh, I got introduced to a lot of RF and microwave systems. Then uh, I was a part of the team that was basically di uh, digitizing our oil field. So once we brought all this data into Wonderware and uh, Intellusion, we had to write some hooks to uh, basically push that data into SQL Server and Oracle which then got sucked into all the rest of uh, Chevron's you know, enterprise planning uh, systems. So uh, that was really interesting to see the full process from here's how it comes out of the ground, here's all the processes that has to be in place for blending and control to, to, to get it uh, into a process where it be put into a pipeline. And then once it gets to the refinery, all the process has to go to it becomes an end product. And so I got a really good a solid foundation of how uh, you know digital process controls apply to all those different OT functions. And then at the end of my, uh, right before I left Chevron, uh, I was able to work with the IT department to, uh, to get that data into uh, enterprise databases. So that was kind of my uh, 
my segue over to the data side of things. And that's sort of the beginnings of the of the challenges we have today, right? Like, hey, can we can we get some data from over there? And can we get get a connection to the? So you're that's right. Yeah, just open a port to, to to the firewall. Let me get right into it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there's some things you just don't want to say out loud that were done back then. You know, like, oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> Um, well, you know, the, I, I know the actual moment when my cybersecurity light went off, and it was because I was supporting uh, a lot of uh, sulfur plants and uh, processing plants up and down the San Joaquin Valley in California. And the, one of the plants I was supporting uh, had all the screen NT4 screens blue screen at the same time in the middle of the night. And so I was called mm-hmm. to, to drive about an hour and a half out of the plant. I spent the whole night re-imaging all the machines, getting all the, the, the graphics going and connecting it to the, to the controllers and, and actually restarting the whole plant, only to find out the next day it did the same thing at the same exact time. This happened about three or four times. Uh, and so finally, uh, I reached out to the uh, Chevron IT Corporation and said, look, uh, something's happening on the, on the network side of things because every time about 2 a.m. at night, we're getting a blue screen uh, impact and it's shutting down our plant. So they brought out this huge box, which was like, you know, a sniffer before we had, you know, uh, TCP dump and Wireshark. It was a physical sniffer box. And we put that in the line from the, the network drop at the plant and before it hit all the controllers. And we found out that it was another Chevron desktop in Perth, Australia. Someone was launching the precursor to the Microsoft Visio product, and it was crawling out the entire global Chevron information, global information link, build network, trying to draw the network, and it couldn't draw these little boxes that was controlling the plant. It didn't know how to draw a PLC back then, so it was just hammering, you know, fingerprinting, trying to draw this this PLC. And so, uh, you know, I was probably 24 years old at the time, and then once that light went off, I started pounding the table at every meeting like guys why is our process control systems our SCADA systems connected to the same network that our email systems our internet people are streaming uh streaming radio stations over the same network it's all yeah. the same network so we need to have a separate network for all of our operational systems so that someone on a desktop you know in australia can't shut down our processes here and i was very passionate about it and so about by the time uh i guess i was 26 years old uh, I decided to leave Chevron and start my own company, and that's where I just started writing articles in, uh, you know, Popular Mechanics and Chemical Engineering. I started publishing articles. That's how I, uh, I was able to reach out to uh, Brian Singer and a couple of others who were also, you know, you know, pounding the pavement, going, "We need firewalls. We need separate networks. We can't be putting it on the same networks." So it was like this: the birthing of this whole industry started from that one night that jumped me out of bed. I was like. This has got to be a better way. <laughs> oh man, that's such a great story on so many levels. It's uh, it's it is a canary in the coal mine, right? I mean, it went off. And do you remember what when that was? Sort of approximately uh, what year? Or... Uh, that would have been probably uh, 1999 or year 2000. Probably year 2000. Okay, yeah. So that's that's as early as uh, you know. I, I think I'm I'm approaching. Well, we will be approaching 100 episodes and recorded. And I think we've, we've maybe dropped 80 of them. And uh, not that you can go back that far. There's a lot of people been working in this, you know, along, you know, longer than most. And you're in that group. And, you know, you mentioned Brian, he's been on the show. But not many people can go back and say, I'm starting to really think. A lot of them go back to plant, to, to control system work and, you know, SCADA work and all that going back, you know, decades, sure. But when it's like, no, I've been 
security and starting to work on it and think on it going you know 23 you know 23 years that's about as early as anybody can can claim i mean maybe a few people can claim earlier but not many yeah and there and there wasn't really anything back then about uh the technology and uh interface between uh network security computers and protocols and ot stuff right so i had a degree in in process control systems worked as a process control system guy once i found out that the computer network that connected all these things was the biggest danger to our control system then i had to dive deep into teaching myself about tcp ports udp ports and protocols and the whole osi stack i taught myself cybersecurity because I, I didn't know, uh, like, hey, this is a whole nother field that needs to be applied to these operational technology stuff. So that's how I got cross-trained is that I took that domain knowledge and process control and then taught myself cybersecurity and then was an advocate for that ever since then. Yeah, well, you just described the process that made you one of the purple unicorns. You know, this discussion about unicorns came up and somebody on one of my, I think it was on a podcast, but somebody was saying, Oh no, you know, people really understand both domains. They really understand safety, reliability, resiliency, and how the plant works. And they really understand IT and cybersecurity. That's not just a unicorn. Those are more common. That's a purple unicorn or even rarer. <laughs> okay. uh, I'll take that. <laughs> but you know, it's it's interesting because you're touching on where do people come from, you know, in this space. And we have in our our community now approaching 29,000 people that have signed up with us, people of all makes and models, right? And you you just described how you were in the engineering pathway and you grafted this missing domain knowledge into your into your career path and then you merged the two and then that, that's where the true you know the true expertise comes from to do cybersecurity in in this domain people come from it cyber backgrounds and learn engineering but what i have heard now the preponderance of evidence of hiring managers and people like you and just all this stuff is if i can have it I'd rather have somebody who really understands operating technology and all the things that come with that and that they learn or add, which is what you just described, you know, sort of this, the, the IT and cyber components to it, you know, eventually becoming sort of all a mesh together. But if I had my choices, I'd rather, you know, I like that path for whatever reason that has certainly right. popped up more often than not. But we've got IT people that are, you know, our IT heritage people that are learning as fast as they can. We know they're, they're part of the community. We don't have enough people, so I'm always an advocate for, well, wherever you come from, find out what you don't know, get mentors in the area where you don't know, dive deep Absolutely. in the area you don't know, respect that you don't know, you know, that domain very well, but don't, you know, don't hesitate to jump in. Yeah, and, and today, if you flash forward, you know, 23 years to today, there's, there's just a wealth of information out there that you can get that type of expertise now through multiple ways. So uh, I definitely am an advocate of, of, of going out and you're thirsty, go look for the information, get the knowledge, and then go out there and do it. You know, go out and put yourself in the uh, out boots on the ground in these plants and get, get your get your hands dirty. Yeah, and, and you're, you know, this is that's a good segue to another thing that you, you've been doing for a long time. You have, you've been an instructor and you created uh, your own courseware in this area. So you're talking about, you know, going out and getting knowledge. Today, there are some more options. But I know when you started, uh, there were very, very few training options for cybersecurity in this in this space uh what what was the story there as far as what prompted you to create one and i know you've taught it all around the world now well uh 
the first thing that came to mind was I think ISA had approached me about writing a book. So I started writing a book about control system cybersecurity in 2007 and 2008. I got about probably nine or 10 chapters deep in it, but uh, I was so busy you know, doing assessments around the world that I kind of put that on the back burner. And then uh, the end of 2008, uh, SANS had approached us about doing a collaborative uh, feature at all of the SANS events that they were going to start uh, releasing uh, that's based on you know, I- ICS security. And they said, well, can you finish out your training programs that we had started earlier in 2008 and then get it polished up to where we can start to offer your training course at all of our conferences around the world? And so uh, we launched uh, our five-day hands-on uh, security uh, training at an I- at the uh, at the SANS ICS event in Orlando. I think that's where I met you. Uh, yeah, 2009. I think 2010 would come comes to mind is, is, is yeah. probably probably when it was. Yeah. yeah and so the, the basis was uh, I wanted to cross train people to so that if you didn't have any knowledge at all in control systems, uh, you can take our course. So the first day was a deep dive into everything from instrumentation to uh, process control loops, four to 20 milliamp into memory mapped I.O., how the controllers uh, map memory, how that memory addresses are then pulled by, are pulled by an OPC server and brought into a flat file database, how those tag variables are then referenced in graphics on the SCADA screen, and then how those, that flat file can then be historized into a historian, and then how that historian can then feed that data onto enterprise systems. So I spent like a whole day just covering all those facets so that way, if you had no background in control systems, by the end of the first day, you could really understand all the different moving parts. And then we had to spend a whole day in, you know, computer protocols and how packets are sent back and forth. We put a lot of hands-on exercises in capturing packets, looking at packets in Wireshark, understanding what happens on the wire. Then we spent the third day just beating up the system. You know, okay, how, what could an attacker do if they got access to a control system? Again, a lot of hands-on exercises. And then the last, the end of the training was, okay, now that we know how a control system works, how a computer network works, how uh, a threat actor can get into the system, what they can do with all their tools, how do we defend a control system? And then lastly, how do we put processes and policies around uh, the people that manage the systems? And that ended up resonating uh, quite well, I think, since 2009, we've taught over 4,000 people around the world using that approach. And then uh, in 2011, we started teaching a, a smaller two-day course. Tom Parker and I built a course for Black Hat. And uh, I can't, I don't know how many students we've taught through the Black Hat course, but that ran consistently for 11 years every year at Black Hat. So uh, it, I felt like it was a, a calling almost to, to take what I know, package it up, and give it away to others. And I remember there was a, a moment where I was thinking, okay, should I keep this information close to the chest? You know, because we've got this proven methodology. I wrote some yeah. software called yeah. RedCat that automates data collection. We've got all these processes around what makes us unique as a vulnerability assessment team, you know, or do we just give it away to the industry? And I thought, well, you know, we've created a safe way to do vulnerability assessments and security testing in a live control system environment. And I wanted to give that information out because I wanted other people to follow and emulate 
the processes that we have developed so that people more assessments can be done on live control systems safely without impacting operations. So uh, yeah, we just gave away all of our uh, all of our methodology, and and it's it's come back uh, to to benefit us, you know, o over time as other students go on into other industry uh, roles. You know, they always come back to us and say, hey, you know, you taught me this course back in 2012 or what have you. And now I'm director of operations at this water plant. Can you guys yeah. come out and do that for us? You know, so yeah, sure. uh, I think uh, I believe in karma, I believe in and, and the universe will will give back to you, you know, if you're if you're a good steward. So it's been, it's been a good ride. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's hard to condense so many years into, you know, just into a 45 minute discussion. But. You went from Chevron to another effort, uh, PLCs Plus. You then founded a company. That company got acquired by uh, one of the very, very first pure play cybersecurity OT companies, Industrial Defender. I think of that company and Eric Byer's company as sort of the first two that I can come up with that are, you know, pure play, right? And so uh, you were with them for some years, and then and then you've had a long run now, 15 years with Red Tiger. You know, is are there anything from that era, you know, starting? You know, now you've started two companies. One ended up Industrial Defender, and one you're still running. Anything about that sort of journey from engineer and working at a Chevron to creating your own uh, your own company? I know those are two very different experiences. Chevron and entrepreneur. You know, Chevron engineer and entrepreneur. Um, you know, there's people wondering about that sort of thing, making that that transition. Any sort of words of wisdom or or stories, you know, from that that transitional thing that you've done now a couple times. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, when I when I talk to other people that are looking at maybe making a move to starting their own company, I always tell them it's always best to work for a larger company first, uh, get your feet wet to understand how big corporations work, right? How their uh, SAP works, how invoicing works, you know, the whole aspects of how to sell to companies, you know, to how to uh, how to determine what is a need and how to create a service that meets that need. I didn't uh, start my own company until I had a, a couple other companies interested in in the services that we were doing, and then uh, it was a safe play to start my company because I had a couple of uh, uh, clients ready to to sign us up. You know, so the, I think the first uh, six months to a year when you're starting a new company, you have to assume that you're going to be in the black. You know, you're not going to be in the black. You know, you're going to be you're going to be spending a lot of money on infrastructure and you might not uh, be able to cover all of your costs that first year, so save your money or have a good investor that can back you or have a very good client that uh, you can uh, bill against and build uh, with upon for that first, uh, that first year or two. Also, it takes uh, a strong stomach <laughs> going from having a dedicated paycheck uh, coming in to kind of like, having to create your own future and your own payment sometimes you know you don't get a payment for a while and you have to pay your employees and contractors first and you pay yourself last but uh you know over the course of time it gets easier and i really value the time that i spent with industrial defender because you know that my mindset when i was a small business owner managing about 12 to 14 employees uh everything i was doing was time material based you know it was very ran like clockwork when I went to work for a, a larger company, and I think it was strongly underneath the leadership of Brian Ahern and working with Andrew Ginter and others at that time, I, I was able to envision a larger way of selling. Instead of selling our services at time and material cost, one customer at a time, 
I was asked to transition from being a VP of professional services to being a VP of sales because our professional services team was selling more than our sales team was. So uh, I had to kind of be put into the fire as, as an engineer and say, now I want you to learn sales. So I had to then create the whole process of building a pipeline, qualifying leads, following up with leads, uh, and then how to create business partnerships in other countries around the world. I was very fortunate to be able to set up a global system of uh, sales that were local resellers of our services. So going from like personally just selling me to a customer, setting up other relationships where they're selling to their customer bases, and then we're taking a percentage of what they're selling. So I think that process at Industrial Defender really opened my mind on, on how to run a business when it's larger than just a small business uh, with 10 employees. So that helped me understand the bigger aspect of sales and marketing uh, on a global scale. Yeah, that, that's a couple of great, great milestones. And those did set you up pretty well for, for the, the last 15 years. You know, those were pretty formative uh, experiences. You know, the understanding sales, I, I think that's been my entrepreneur, you know, journey. It's like, wow, it's not about how cool the product or service is. Because some really cool products and services still don't, you know, penetrate. It's like, it is about how do you give people to part with, you know, their capital to buy the thing. And that's not always easily done. And in, in this space, as early as you are were, uh, it definitely wasn't easily done. Uh, buying cybersecurity for OT, I mean, it's heating up now, maybe we could say. It certainly wasn't back then. Oh, I, I always tell my friends that uh, early on, I think maybe 2001 up until Stuxnet, 2010, I had to sell twice because like everyone knows they need a toothbrush, right? You go to Walmart, go down the toothbrush aisle, you pick the, the toothbrush you want because you know you need to brush your teeth, right? So when I was trying to sell cybersecurity uh, for operations back then, I had to not only sell them that you know we, we were the people that could help them with their problem, but we also had to tell them why they needed a toothbrush. Like, okay, I, had to, I was bringing PLCs onto, into boardrooms with lights attached to them and hacking it in front of their board of directors I was showing them how easy it is to just toggle the memory inside of PLCs and turn things on and off, open valves. You know, I had to basically convince them that security could have an impact on their availability of their plant and then sell them on why they should hire us to help them with their problem. Um, of course, after Stuxnet and uh, I guess the, the, the last 10 years uh, of uh, different incidents happening, people are feeling the pain. You know, ransomware is, is wiggling its way, propagating its way into plants and, and consuming all of their, their data and deleting data. So now people uh, fully understand why they need cybersecurity. Uh, but in the early days, you know, I was definitely, you know, carrying in PLCs and hacking into stuff and trying to convince people, you know, this is why you need to, to protect your systems. Well, yeah, I, it's funny you can say that. I remember your course. And one of the things about it was the blinky lights, you know, the you, and these boxes. I remember the boxes you had to ship, and you're like, yes. and you're like, oh, next time I'm going to be doing this course in Singapore. Yep, I'm taking all these boxes with me. Yeah, absolutely, man. And then having to, some countries that we had to teach the course in, uh, I had to bribe the customs. I remember going through Indonesia, and uh, they they just scratching your head, going, no, we're not going to allow these into our country. I'm like, no, I'm teaching a class with this. This is my own products. 
I'm taking the products back with me. I'm not selling them here and convincing them. Finally, I just straight took out American cash and just said, look, man, I'm going to be here for five days teacher's class. Take this. And let's just say it never happened. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not saying that you should bribe uh, customs personnel, but in some of these third world countries, that's the only way I was able to get those PLCs through customs. <laughs> wow. Oh, man, I love it. Oh, well, you know, it, again, it's so hard to condense all the things you and I can talk about. And we may have to come back and unpack other things as another episode because I just I can think of, you know, eight different threads that already have come today that we could pull. Any words of wisdom, thoughts about where we are? I mean, you sort of foreshadowed that obviously things are maturing, things are are different than they were 10 years ago. But, you know, looking ahead, are you, you know, are you excited? Are you pessimistic? Um, are we conquering this problem or are we just at the beginning of, uh, you know, the problem? I think we're about 75% there, to be honest. Yes, I think I think that the industry is waking up. We have some very good, solid uh, control frameworks out there that provide guidance into uh, the policies, procedures, and technology that should be deployed within OT. Um, I think that as the OT world learns from the IT world, there's a lot of uh, regiment in terms of uh, cyber health and hygiene that IT is doing very well that OT can learn from. I'm excited to see technologies like virtualization come to OT just for the, the benefit of really fast restoration procedures. I think uh, back when I was a control systems engineer, you would never hear me say that we should run a control system in a VM, right? I, I was a very strong proponent of a PLC should be doing what a PLC does, uh, a PC should be doing what a PC does, right? And uh, it wasn't until I did a, an assessment in Puerto Rico for uh, Johnson & Johnson that I got to see an entire control system emulated in VMs, even the controllers, and then be able to see how fast they're able to switch even at the process level to another VM that's doing full control in, inside a VM. And I think when you look at the, the NIST uh, CSF framework, uh, a lot of our customers understand they need to have the protect area and they need to understand asset inventory. They need to understand detection. Okay, they need to, they're starting to understand response. But, you know, being able to restore your operations extremely fast, you're going to need help uh, with leveraging some of the technologies like, you know, ghosting systems, you know, over, over the wire hardware backups, uh, even using VMs to just go to another VM that's running the same code base. Um, so I think that as OT kind of learns from IT, we're going to be able to build more resilient control systems by design. Okay, so every potential failure has been thought of and the system just automatically rolls to the next available system that's going to power the system. I think that's also, I'm very optimistic about that. The, what I'm not optimistic about is kind of like the uh, blurring of the electronic security perimeter. You know, back uh, about five or six years ago when, you know, NERC SIP was pounding the, the pavement with you know, strong separation between the OT environment and non-OT environments and having a strong electronic security perimeter, you know, that allowed us to provide a lot of guidance to our customer base around, okay, what's inside the perimeter, you, you manage it this way, and then anything outside the perimeter, you manage it this way. However, with uh, Internet of Things, industrial Internet of Things, cloud services, 
Uh, these are now a big reality in control systems. It's going to be very difficult to draw that line in the sand that says, this is my control system and this is not my control system. You know, we just finished a very large assessment project for a global manufacturer and uh, some of their custom machines had to go out every day to a cloud to check in and get a license code in order for it to, to turn on every day. Those other functions where it would send all the parameters of their manufacturing up to another cloud system and it will do process optimization, send it back, and then all the set points that the operators use to start the next batch was optimized by the cloud. So now control systems, and this was, this was just last year. So I think uh, moving forward, it's gonna be difficult to find a control system that's really truly walled off from the rest of the world. I mean, there, we have to assume that with remote workers, with remote, remote troubleshooting, that uh, outside influences are gonna be, have to be allowed inside control systems. And to be able to do that in a very metered, managed way, where you're knowing who's coming in the door, multi-factor authentication, and logging what is going on with that remote connection to control system is highly important. And uh, almost every one of our customers today is asking us about how to do that properly. So I don't think it's gonna go away anytime soon. <laughs> more and more things are gonna be more and more connected. Yeah, well, I loved your, that's a very nice detailed characterization. What I believed to be the case, it's good to hear coming from you. This is how it works. I mean, this is what's happening. Um, yeah, we're, the genie's out of the bottle. We're not going to push it back in. And the idea of clean DMZs and all, you know, those sorts of things uh, are going to be a thing of the past. Yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're always going to have, uh, you know, that onion layer model, right? So, you know, you want your control system to have the least amount of impedances between itself and other trusted air, uh, members of its control system. And then you're always going to have these little DMZs and speed bumps and firewalls, you know, separating by functionality what's a control system and not a control system. But as we all have to allow more and more connections in and out, uh, we're going to have to apply concepts like zero trust to control systems. Uh, something else that I'm working on very heavily as a research project right now is how can we leverage things like uh, crypto? And, uh, and, and other concepts to control systems. Uh, how can we validate every command with a chain? You know, so these are things that are um, you know, noodling around in my mind. Uh, I'm probably gonna have some, some white papers coming out next year about some of the stuff I'm working on. But uh, I think that we need to be, stop being scared of IT and stop being scared of cloud, stop being scared of these remote connections. Fully understand that that's, that's going to be a way of life moving forward. And then how do we design a system that we can keep going and keep managing properly uh, in this new world that we're living in? Yeah, and when, when you sort of were describing that, I, I, you didn't use the word segmentation or micro-segmentation, but the, the little DMZs and things like that, that's gonna be the name of the game. I, I sort of was, was my mind thinking, no big broad DMZ, like over here's this and over here's that, and there's only one little thread between them, that goes away, right? But you, yes. are you a fan of, I mean, it sounded like you were describing sort of the segmentation part, which is these things don't have to be logically connected. Anybody working over here doesn't need access over there, right? Yes, yes. I think you know, segmentation is definitely uh, much needed in this space and micro-segmentation too, right? Especially with self-propagating threats like ransomware, 
you know, you don't want that to come into your control system and immediately wipe out every single machine in your system, right? So if there are some parts of your control system that can operate and stand alone, why not make them little islands of automation and only allow the, what's needed to cross over, you know, uh, either in non-Ethernet ways. You know, I think in uh, 2007, I wrote a white paper for EPRI that talked about uh, e-gapping things instead of air-gapping things. So what they wanted to know is how can I communicate set points and variables in real time between two control systems without allowing TCP IP communications? So what I did was I talked about using serial communications. So basically taking all the IO and doing a serial out and then reading all the IO as serial in. And even you can use uh, Landtronics boxes to basically take RS-232 signals and RS-232 signals on this side and then use uh, a serial to Ethernet converter uh, if you have to go long distances, right? So I was a big proponent of using non-TCP IP communications for very critical operations when you need live data feed transfers. Just do it over some other medium not using TCP IP because I knew that all of the propagating threats and ransomware is going to use TCP IP as a vehicle, right? So how do you inoculate yourself from all of these potential threats out there? Don't use an internet-based protocol. Yeah, that's the so, number one threat vector, right? You could say it gets much more exotic to do to like to take advantage of what you were just describing. It's not probably impossible, but you just wiped out a huge a number of threats that are written for the most common communication protocol, right? Right. Yeah. So that was 2007. <laughs> I was saying, hey guys, uh, stop using all these uh, protocols that are wrapped in TCP/IP when you're when you're having to share information from one control system to another control system uh, at the I/O level. You know, and and of course that kind of went in the face of a lot of vendors who were really pushing Ethernet I/O at that time. And so I was, well, oh, if you have to use Ethernet I/O, then go through a serial decoupler on both sides, so you don't have, you know, full TCP access all the way to the to the I/O board. So, anyway, that was just food for thought. But uh, you know, this, this is such a fun world. Um, you can see I'm still passionate about this 23 years later. Yeah. Uh, every client we work with is is a new puzzle to solve. And then, and through our training and outreach to conferences, we get to talk about that you know, with others and they get to learn from the mistakes of others and go off and, and make make the world a more safer place for, for us all. So well thank you loving. for doing that and for so long and so passionately. And uh so you know you know we our society depends on uh depends on uh, more purple unicorns. So thanks for being an early one. Well if you're up for it, I uh, like to end the show with something called the Pavot questionnaire. Uh, it is borrowed from uh, a TV show called Inside the Actor Studio that has run, or at least it ran. I don't know its status now. That the, the host James Lipton has passed on, um, but he, uh, for years, he would interview all the great actors and actresses, and it would end with this questionnaire that he got from a French show, hence the name. And he he used it, I think, word for word from them. And so I've borrowed it and, and sort of tipping my hat to those shows before. Drepport, I'll ask you the uh, the ten questions. Sounds good. All right. What is your favorite word? Oh, man, uh, I would have to say accountability. In our world today, we have we lack accountability. And I think as I look at the most well-run well OT security programs out there, it's because they have accountability from the top down in terms of who's supposed to be doing what each day to keep their program running safe. And uh, I think if, if more of us could could hold each other accountable to what we're supposed to be doing in our daily lives, 
be way better, better off. What is your least favorite word? I think can't. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Oh, easily, easily it has to be music. You know, if, if I'm working out in the gym, there's a certain kind of music I play that pumps me up. You know, if I'm working on a deadline on my computer, I usually tend to listen to like EDM house music without any words because there's words in the music that's going to take me away from the words I'm typing. If I'm just vibing out with friends, then I, there's another type of music for that. But I think music is the heart of it all for me. What turns you off? Uh, pessimistic people, negativity, people talking about other people. Uh, I'm just not about that. Uh, sometimes I'll be in a room and I'll hear someone just talking about some really negative things. I'll try to steer the conversation. If it's not working, I'll just walk away because I don't really want to propagate, you know, a negative kind of a, a feeling, you know. What is your favorite curse word? I'll probably say ass all the time, you know, dumbass, stupid ass, this, you know, throw that around all the time. Usually at myself. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? <laughs> I don't know about turning on, turning me on, but my favorite fond sound that uh, brings me a smile to my face is the sound of my dog snoring at night. <laughs> she has a nice purr, a little sound, it just puts me right to sleep. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? My alarm going off, definitely. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You know, if I could pay my bills every day, I would be a musician. I would just live in the music stream because I every time I play music, it just, I just see the smiles on all the humans' faces, like dancing, having a good time. And I like putting smiles on humans. If I could do that every day, I would do it. What profession would you not like to do? I would not like to be a pharmacy tech, okay, because I was one uh, when I was in college, right before I went to the Army Corps of Engineers, and a, a couple of my aunts and uh, uncles are in the pharmacy field, so they got me into it, thinking I might you know, be a pharmacist one day. Then I was on my feet for 10 hours a day, dealing with people at their worst. They're sick, they're nasty, they're, you know, they don't want to be there, and I'm then between sick people and you know the HMOs and the insurances, which are saying no, having explained that to the people who are sick, you know I have a, a lot of uh, respect for pharmacy, pharmacy guys that work in the pharmacy field because uh, you're on your feet the entire time and you're dealing with people at their worst. So uh, that's definitely something uh, I wouldn't want to do. <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Wow, I would like for him to say, hey, thank you for, for being uh, an extension of my love for other humans. Thank you for your, com your compassion for others and for your patience with humanity. And uh, if I can make it to the end of my life, continuing to be that way, I would say job well done. Oh, that is one of the best answers to that question I think I've heard uh, so far. I'm just wrapping up with Jonathan Pillay, founder, executive director, principal consultant, uh, chief bottle washer uh, for Red Tiger Security, long, long, long time contributor to OT or control system cybersecurity, uh, from teaching to speaking to standards development to certification development, you've touched it all. Thank you for everything you do for the community and, uh, and, uh, and for coming on the show. Thanks, Derek, appreciate it. Take care, Jonathan. So I hope to see you soon.